because it makes it necessary not just to count how many performances of the Fifth Symphony we could find before and after and during the war, but to discuss the different situations, not just in political life and in the way occupation was ran, but also in musical life and musical traditions. So that makes us have to explain a lot of things that we at home don't find necessary because everybody knows it. We have to explain what do you mean when we sing music, for example. Does it include Fiorelisa or does it not include Fiorelisa? I definitely think it does, but people started to giggle. We have to consider what do we mean when we say Beethoven's music? Does it count all of his music and also low status use of it? And we also have to be specific. What, what do we mean when we say musicology? Is that the historical study of classical masters or the study of all kinds of music and sounds that could be interpreted as art? We have to specify how do we think about that and, and do we actually work as musicologists in ways that are at least so similar that we can perform musicology together. This is Claiming Beethoven. We portrait a group of international musicologists and historians examining aspects of propaganda, collaboration, resistance, persecution and exile to learn about the distortion of historiography and the relevance for our own present times. This podcast by Michael Custodis and his team at the University of Münster is related to the project The Role of Beethoven and His Music in Nazi-Occupied European Countries. It's my pleasure, Michael, to welcome you here for the podcast Claiming Beethoven. This time I'm talking to Michael Fredsö, the Professor for Historical Musicology at the University of Copenhagen. Very welcome. Thank you. We recently met at a conference in Bonn, where we tried to learn from each other the different perspectives within our project of the role of Beethoven and his music in Nazi-occupied European countries. And now we're meeting again at a conference in Berlin. And why do we talk to Michael Fjellsö? Because he's an expert on Danish music history with a lot of different topics. And one of his main perspectives is research to learn and to discuss the impact of music on society. And especially what brings us more to our topic, the music life in Denmark during the German occupation. So it's very nice that we can talk and get into the details of your project. First, I would like um, for all our listeners to get an idea how the circumstances in Denmark after April 1940 were, uh, especially also concerning music. Maybe you would like to summarize first a little bit the situation. What was the music like, uh, the music life also like in Denmark after April 1940? Yeah, I think it's very important to to get the picture of the way Denmark was occupied and how occupation worked. And I also think it's a very crucial topic in our project because occupation is not just occupation. The Danish occupation was a quiet and peaceful one in the beginning. There was a bit of fighting for some hours on the 9th of April 1940 and after that all fighting was cancelled and the Danish government asked the population to stay calm, to follow the instructions from the Danish government which was still in, in function and then they started kind of working with the German 
occupation forces in a way that can be termed as collaboration or termed as negotiation. But in a way that meant that the Danish government was still working. It was the German uh, ambassador which was put in in front of of the occupation authority. And that band, which was quite a, a special case for Denmark, that everything ran during the foreign ministry. The Germans still considered Denmark a foreign country. Denmark still referred to Germany as a foreign country. So they ran it basically over the former embassy, which meant that it also ran over, over the foreign ministry in Germany. So uh, that was the way it, it, it kind of worked. The Germans didn't directly control Danish society, but they asked the Danish government to do things in a certain way and then they negotiated and then they did some things in almost that way. And it went on in that way for, for three years. And in August 43, there was riots in the streets. There was a bit of fighting and shooting in Copenhagen also and in all of Danish towns. And then there was a, a kind of military uh, rule for six, eight weeks or something like that. But the government couldn't stay. But the head of the government department, they stayed in function. So we had like a non-functioning government, but, but still the, the basic system ran in the same way. And there were more resistance since the middle of the war, those, those resistance movement in Denmark, and they, they kind of was a, a parallel and alternative instance that people listened to, and they had all kinds of ways to communicate with the, with the Danish population. Um, we know from music history that the German-Danish or Danish-German relations were quite old, quite strong, and of course Denmark is so close to certain parts of Germany that after the war in the late 19th century, probably the connections were very close. So there must have been very much interaction between German musicians, Danish musicians, repertoire, concert programs, and so on. How much did the music life change after the 9th of April, 1940, or did it change very much? For example, did it get very patriotic? Or especially we're getting closer to our question with Beethoven, do you have any ideas if somehow the political situation mirrored in the musical life? Well, uh, to the first part of the question, uh, there was very close interaction between musical centers in Northern Europe, as I prefer to say. We have a tradition of talking about Danish music and German music as two entities that then could may or could not uh, have interaction. But talking about musical life in Northern Europe, that is not an accurate model of what really happened. Until recently, until 1871, there was a lot of Germanys and they worked in different ways and they, they each had a musical center and the Scandinavian countries had similar musical centers. And what was very important was that Leipzig became a model for how to, to institutionalize musical life. And we had a very famous composer from Denmark, Nils Wilhelm Gehle, who was very well known in Germany, very much played in Germany. He studied in Leipzig, he became the successor of Mendelssohn in Leipzig, conducted the Gewandhaus, and he was also working at the conservatory there. And then he went back to Copenhagen and copied that model. So the way musical life 
was structured in Copenhagen was the same way as it was structured in Leipzig. And the repertoires, the way you taught music history and music theory as part of a musician's uh, education, all those things were similar in, in Copenhagen as in Leipzig, as in Berlin, as in other musical centers. So when we came to 1940, we still had a common Northern European musical culture of which Copenhagen and Denmark was part, and it didn't change overnight. It means that they played a lot of Beethoven in the 1930s and even more, actually. And they, of course, played a lot of Danish music and uh, Scandinavian music, uh, too. I've especially been looking into the archives of the Danish National Radio. Uh, they have very minute uh, and accurate, detailed programs for every piece of music played since the Danish National Radio was started in 1925. So. I can I can look in there and see how much Beethoven was played and there was a steady rise in how much Beethoven was played from 1930 onwards and 1940 didn't make a change they still played Beethoven as they had done in 1942 a bit more 1943 a bit more and then a bit less and, but then at the end of the war from 5th of May 1945 the number of Beethoven pieces played in Danish radio, national radio fell to a third of the level it had been before so my explanation or my theory about what happened is that 1940 the Danish audience didn't consider Beethoven a German composer it was just he he was a German composer, but I didn't feel that he was forced up upon them and they, they, they had always played Beethoven and they kept playing and listening to Beethoven. In 1945, they felt that now he had become a symbol of the German occupation and they didn't want to listen to him. And that took a year or something like that. And then it came back to a normal level. They said, okay, we'll, we, we'll play Beethoven again. You introduced very smoothly, and thanks for that, your own contribution to our international project. And I have several questions now, including which kind of Germanness, German or European attribution was connected with Beethoven, and also about the artists who performed which kind of repertoire. So maybe we'll start speaking about the artists, and I fully agree to your description that we're speaking about a huge cultural area of Northern Europe with many um, geographical, but also cultural spaces that were connected for so long that the Second World War somewhat introduced certain changes, but the cultural relations stayed very strong. So first of all, is there a distinction between touring musicians from Germany in Denmark after April 1940 and Danish musicians performing? We could speak about pianists, for example, with piano sonatas or chamber music, uh, the string quartets. Those concerts are very easy to arrange. Having symphonic concert takes more logistics. But do you already have an idea about the artists, about the performers we're talking about? Famous Danish musicians, famous German musicians, or musicians uh, from Germany living already in Denmark before April 1940. So could you tell us something about the artists being involved? Do you have certain ideas? Well, what has been mostly my focus until now has been to look into what was played in the Danish National Radio. And that means that it's 
more or less a lot of orchestral music. The, the Danish radio had their own symphony orchestra. And still in the 1940s and 30s, most of what was played in, in, in radio was live music. The Danish national radio had a head of everything until 1937, who didn't like recorded music. Ah. So he kept a very high level of live music, live performances, also broadcasted from other places uh, during, uh, to the, the Danish radio. Uh, and that tradition was still alive. They did play records, but not very often. That's, that's very interesting. So that's really a difference to other countries. That's why he, there was so much live music. And as you said, uh, very much symphonic music or also uh, in the programs, also solo music, like a piano evening or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that, that was also the case, yeah. Okay, um, do you, because you somehow found some sort of a treasure with those radio programs because it gives so detailed information about what happened and about somehow what was changed. Did you observe certain continuities or changes in the repertoire, what was performed? Like, were there favors for certain symphonies or for certain piano sonatas? Or was it some of the average, most popular pieces that we would expect, like the fifth symphony, the third, the sixth, the seventh? Were there any details about that, that you could learn from the programs already? I haven't got into that level of details yet, but my general impression is that uh, they more or less play the same repertoire as before. And I also guess that one of the interesting things about studying reception is that you can play exactly the same piece of music and because circumstances have changed, it suddenly means something else. And I, I, I think that's that's one of those things that I really want to, to see if I can find some evidence of how these perceptions were changed. One thing we can, we know, and that's of Let's not be tuned. It was the way that singing Danish national songs changed and got a much more strong meaning attached to it. There was a, there was a strong tradition for singing together and singing national songs and singing other songs together. We have the folk high school and they have a songbook and a melody book, which was abundant. Everybody had one, everybody knew those songs. So it was not something new to sing those songs together, but after April 1940, it meant resistance. And also playing national composers in the Danish radio was something you always had done, but now it meant it's Danish composers. We are playing Danish music now. It's a kind of, it was kind of becoming a second meaning of resistance as well. But you couldn't say only it was resistance and the German couldn't uh, ban Danish music because they had played it before, they still played it and Beethoven was neutral before, now he became more German. You couldn't say it, you could still play him. So uh, that's, that's one of the very interesting things about trying to figure out how, uh, I prefer to say, perception and reception changed. And I also like the challenge of this being very difficult to find out because exactly in the political sphere where you have occupational authorities and you have a level of public censorship, what you could write public in the newspapers. It was not officially censored, but of course there was some kind of self-censorship. If you wrote a review for a Danish newspaper, you knew I can't just write that it was a 
stupid German pianist because then I would get in trouble. So instead I would write, it was a very well, it was a very well technical performance of Beethoven and everybody would know that it meant it was rubbish. But that kind of small signals and the Danish self-perception was when you read common history of the Second World War, it was that you could always get away with it because the Germans didn't understand the nuances. I'm not sure that they didn't, but they choose not to, they choose not to make a conflict when they could keep things calm because that was the main purpose of the, the occupation policy that was keep it calm, keep Denmark a place where you don't have to send additional troops of, as long as it's run, now let them play that music if they want to. Um, was that also the case after the late months of 1943? Was it like that all the time, that there was a certain, not liberty, but somehow open space for musicians to interact or send um, subliminal, I would say, or subconscious like symbols or signals, how the audience could, like symbols beyond the censorship that you just cannot censor, um, but somehow the audience will understand what the artists mean with certain repertoire. Was that the case until May 1945 or did it really drastically change in 44? And I think it's a tricky question mm. because from August 43 things became much more tense and because of the resistance moving, movement doing also sabotage and stuff like that, there was a reaction where some German terror groups bombed Danish cinemas and stuff like that. So the level of violence rose very much and the level of, uh, well, some things were banned and you couldn't play late night shows anymore because there was a curfew and, but it was more in the sphere of light music and, and popular music and reviews where you could perform ditties that had a hidden meaning and then they censored those kind of things, but they didn't really censor the, the repertoire of classical music. They, they more or less tried to promote certain things and they tried to get people that were open-minded to German culture to give uh, speeches in the radio programs that could be about music or could be about German culture and stuff like that. But in the sphere of classical music, there were very few bands. Um, I know that you're somehow still in the phase of research about finding material, so maybe this question is too early to raise, but how much do you already know about the perception of the audience, how if the perception of Beethoven as a German or European composer changed very much. As you said, after the war, you could somehow prove with the numbers that you already found that there must have been a change of perception. But do you already have an idea how much or did it change in the public sphere? Because as you just said, one source could be critics uh, or reviews from concerts and you could try to read between the lines. But uh, do you already have more knowledge or hints um, how we could understand what the audience thought? Well, it, that's one of the points where you have to go into other kinds of sources, I guess. I, I would try to find uh, notebooks or places where people for their own private use just pen down what what have you seen. There are some of those materials in the Royal Library, scrapbooks and things like that. You can also do it the other way around to, to find cases that you know would have been contested and see if you could find all kinds of evidence regarding that event. I found one 
very early thing because the radio programs were of course published in advance and then they took a pen if something changed and you can see the night after the occupation began almost all programs were cancelled because some of that was some of it was uh, broadcasted from another part of the country and it was probably impossible because I guess in those days uh, radio communication were, were disturbed. But you can see what they did instead. They played a concert where they only had Danish and Norwegian and Swedish composers at the program and they, the radio orchestra had that in on their repertoire so they could just do that. But that day it of course meant this is a national statement and playing Norwegian music is a kind of sympathy towards Norway which was occupied as well on the same day. And after that they played a record which was Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra playing Beethoven's fifth piano concerto. I guess Wilhelm Kempf was the soloist. And even if you don't have someone that wrote it down, it's very clear that there was some kind of negotiation going on. Okay, we'll play this concert, live concert with Scandinavian music, and after that we'll play that, and we have both sides represented, and then we, the radio won't be silent tonight. That's quite an obvious case of people influencing and negotiating at, at the same time. And I, I think another very interesting case is that when the Berlin Philharmonics toured in Denmark, it would have been something that people really wanted to hear, because they had admired this orchestra for decades, and Danish musicians knew that some of the, their best colleagues at all were playing that orchestra. At the same time, they knew, of course, it was a propaganda thing. And the Berlin Philharmonic were quite early in going to the newly occupied countries. So it was quite obvious that first we sent in the troops, then we sent in the Philharmonics. That is a case where I would try to find all kinds of evidence for how it was received and how people... I have some memories of reading that some musicians sneaked into that kind of concert because they wouldn't like to be seen going to the concert, but they wouldn't miss it as well because they, they really wanted to hear that orchestra. So it's it's that's such cases, I think, would be great material to try to also reconstruct all the nuances and the difficulties in, in well, reception also, but Beethoven reception especially because you would never get a clear result. Definitely, and what I learned from my own research about the music life in Norway, I don't know if it's very comparable, but um, there was somehow attitude of musicians to perform German music or what was some associated with the German tradition. In the church context, it was the music of Bach, of course, but also they performed once in a while Mendelssohn, but they also performed Beethoven and other composers because they wanted to make a distinction between the occupiers here are the Nazis, but somehow the connection with German repertoire we have is somehow the European heritage we protect now against Hitler. Somehow um, a gesture that also Toscanini and Bruno Walter did in New York in the early 1940s, performing there and conducting Beethoven and Wagner and others uh, just to refuse Hitler's claim to speak on behalf of German heritage. So they had this distinction between German or Germanic or European. That's something where you also have already hints or ideas that certain elements could also could have happened in Denmark. Those traditions are present in Danish reception in general, and it goes into kind of sections. There were those who opposed the Nazis already in the 1930s, and that was mainly left-wing and liberal people in Denmark. They thought of this in political terms. 
So they were anti-Nazi and anti-fascism, but they weren't anti-German culture. And they recognized there was also a resistance in German history of at least that a lot of exiled writers, musicians came through Denmark or, or stayed in Denmark. So they thought about this in political terms and because they were trained in thinking that way, they could more easily think about German culture as something else as, as, as German. Those who just lived in Denmark and suddenly were occupied were, were thought about it more in national terms. They would more easily identify Nazis with, with everything German. So the, those ways of receiving things were, were present in Danish musical life. Uh, what you also presented at our workshop in September was the very interesting observation that indifference to other countries were mostly either the Ministry of Propaganda from Goebbels was involved or the Wehrmacht with Truppenbetreuung, that here in the case of Denmark, the foreign ministry must have been very important, as you already mentioned, with the embassy. Which kind of sources or material do you expect? Because the approach of the foreign ministry concerning also culture can be different than the rivaling ministry from Goebbels. So do we already have information or an idea how this could have taken place and with kind of with what kind of results concerning the music life? I hope to find something in the archives of the German foreign ministry because there was an office for culture, music and radio at the occupation authorities and they had to report back to their ministry in Germany, which was the foreign ministry. And the archives in Denmark, they, they were destroyed when at the end of the war. But I have confidence in German bureaucracy. They must have reported back and have become some direct directives from their from their ministry. So I, I expect that there would be something there that, that could kind of reconstruct what, what kind of cultural policy did they have, if you can talk about that in, with such a neutral word during an occupation. But still, I think it has something to it. Denmark also might be an exceptional case um, because the Danish king did not go into exile like his brother in Norway did. And his son and his wife were very strong music lovers. And as I learned, the Danish king also became a very strong symbol of the resistance against the German occupation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I saw the pictures where he was riding on his horse through Copenhagen. So he was very present. Does that also have something to do or do we know if there were discussions about this musical inspiration that from a music loving uh, royal family or is it more associated with the political arena of the king becoming a very strong symbol of resistance? First, you have to recognize that the Danish monarchy, it kept away from all kinds of political issues. The, the last time they tried to do something on their own was in 1920 and it didn't go very well. So they had learned keep away from interfering. So they wouldn't have interfered directly into musical life or into political life. What they did was what the king did was to take the responsibility to perform as a national symbol and to perform that he wasn't afraid of riding on his horse through Copenhagen, which he did basically every morning until he had a riding accident and couldn't do it anymore. But he, he kind of said, okay, I will symbolize the Danish nation and around him you can, around me you can gather and show your national feelings. And that tradition I mentioned earlier of singing 
together. It became a national thing because also it was it started as not a very big thing, but then the Danish radio joined. So you could have medialized community singing from all over the country at the same time. And then they gave out a songbook on the king's birthday, I think. So it was called Konge Sangbo on the King's Songbook with those leaders that were used in those singing sessions, which was called El Sang, which means everybody sings. So the king, the singing, the community coming together in, in a kind of national uh, manifestation was very strong. And in that way, he, he acted as a, well, a super political figure, a, a figure in a position beyond politics of, on a daily basis, but as a strong symbol for Danish. Well, he wouldn't say resistance, but of course, uh, he would say the Danish nation keeping together. What we also discussed at our workshop is, um, this is some an open question, maybe still speculation to learn if there was a special role reserved for the music of Beethoven. Of course, to take a very different example, during the years of the Nazi occupation or the Third Reich in general, of course, the music of Wagner had a completely different status. Yes, but do you have an idea about the special importance of Beethoven, because as we learned with the workshop where all the colleagues came together and started to share their experiences and their examples, it was very fascinating to see that some, uh, this name even, the composer, sometimes it was the biography, sometimes it was somehow uh, writing or anecdotes, sometimes it was the music itself or famous performers, but somehow uh, it, it gave us the chance of a comparative approach, which is very difficult, politically speaking, historically speaking, and also geographically speaking. But um, do you have hypothesis or a first answer about the special importance of Beethoven for those years? I think it's uh, obvious that Beethoven is a much more interesting case than Wagner in this case. If you talk about reception during the Second World War, if you ask was Wagner perceived as some kind of German imposing their culture on other countries, the answer would be yes. And we would know that in advance. It's much more interesting to go into Beethoven because the answer in advance would be, we don't know, but we want to find out. And he, Beethoven is of course also an interesting case because he's such a central figure in musical life. He's the one where you don't have to mention the composer's name if you just say symphony number no. five. We immediately think about Beethoven's symphony number no. five before thinking about someone else. So in a kind, he heals a core figure in European musical life, not just in German musical life. And that makes, it also makes a rich material to study because he was present in all kind of official concerts. He would already be present and state acts in many countries before the war. And he's also present in the daily life of people having a piano in the living room because they would probably play at least some of his sonatas and he was also present in musical teaching so it's a very rich figure and he's present in all life all levels of musical life and not just on the upper level or the, the basic level and i think that makes him such an interesting case you're not only an expert for Danish music life and European music life, but also concerning the role of musicology in Denmark. And what we learned in comparison with all the different countries involved, that uh, research about music and Nazism in certain countries is very established, 
field of scholarly exchange and an international part of the international summer debate. For other countries, they're still some in a starting mode where, especially Eastern European countries, where it took much longer to get into the ideological distortion of historiography. How about Denmark? Is research about collaboration, about resistance, the music life during the years of the Second World War, but also concern in exile, everything involved in this huge context of music and Nazism. Is that an ongoing debate in Denmark for decades? Or could you somehow summarize that for our listeners? What do you know or how, how young or old is this research itself? Specific research into music during the Second World War is probably quite young. It's not that I wasn't written anything about it, and, and I wouldn't go as easy as you did in your question to state that our perception of Second World War and how we were doing historiography and musicology wasn't distorted, because it was. I think there was a strong story in all occupied countries that we were occupied and we may we had a great resistant movement that would go for denmark that would go for france that would go for the netherlands as well as it would for poland or, or so of, of course a lot of the it, it now it's the older one but the 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 research close to the war were very strong in kind of promoting that story that of course we always were on the right side of history and in Denmark, the specific way of, there were two lines of historians, those identifying with the resistant movement and those identifying with a special way of negotiating things so it didn't go very wrong. And for many years, the second line was also very strong in, in academia and was written by people who were very, very close to power. And they had, in some cases, access to things that others didn't have access to. Uh, so they, they could write without being challenged very much. And now all archives are open. And at one point we had a prime minister 15 years ago who said we shouldn't have gone with negotiating that much. And that opened the field to new discussions that hasn't quite settled yet. And the other thing was that now we are, we are, we have a certain distance. So my generation of researchers can go into the question without being personally involved and say, to what degree did musicians and musical life take part in what the Germans offered us without being recognized. And now we're trying to destroy the memory of the brave resistant fighters. So in, in that way, we also, we, we also had distortions in all countries in the Western Europe sphere. And uh, now we are, I think it's very interesting to see how two researchers from France have the perspective of occupied France and we see France to compare and also the way that three Polish researchers came from each region of Poland, which had each way of being occupied and had different cultural, also historical backgrounds. It's different perspective if, if you see the world from Krakow as if you see it from Warsaw. Um, definitely, and maybe my question was a misunderstanding or provocative because you're absolutely right that some of the distortion of 
historiography, musicology played a huge part in it. And of course, German musicology tried to get involved as much as possible with that because there was this huge taboo, not somehow to look back into history, but somehow to get funding and uh, not to remember anything. Although this strong silence was that the knowledge still was there. You're absolutely right. But um, as we learned from different countries that asking those questions and getting back into those contradictive and controversial parts of one's own history, of one's own country and one's own context, can get or became very controversial during the last years with this strong neo-national waves in European, in Europe in general and in different countries. We uh, learned from different, we had the elections in Sweden, we had the elections recently in Italy and so on, so that somehow the atmosphere also for cultural research as we are doing it somewhat changed that we had to explain certain things differently now or we didn't have to explain so how do you consider or perceive yourself the present situation for this kind of research in the european context as you are such a strong part yourself in those debates my perspective is to see my line of work in a kind of post-national tradition. When I said earlier that I actually consider Northern European musical culture to be a common field, that is also a way of not interpreting everything in national terms. And I think basically that was the way musicology worked because uh, the science of musicology was born at exactly the same time as the modern idea of nation states. So musicology formed itself being the being the science that had to provide each country with its own music history and had to sort out which what which part was German history, what part was Danish history, what part was Sweden, and so. I've, I try to to look at it in another way, and in that way, I'm contributing to working against neo-nationalist waves. And sometimes they are actually providing funding that we wouldn't have had otherwise. In the early 2000s, there was a, a new national confidence in in Danish life that meant that the state funded great Gesamtausgaben. Edition of all of Carl Nielsen's music was funded from the Ministry of Culture. That wouldn't have been possible 10 years earlier or 10 years later. And sometimes it gets, uh, well, sometimes you don't get any funding out of a new national way, but sometimes they actually think that the culture of this country is so important that we actually have to invest in it. So I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that it's not good for something. You also contributed, or still do, um, in the debates we have for our project, very constructive critique about methods, about research questions, how such a challenge of trying to get a comparative approach with so many differences we have uh, during the years of the Nazi-occupied uh, European countries, that somehow it, it helped very much to get back to basic questions. At the same time, I guess you have somehow, as you mentioned with certain examples, also expectations for this project, for your own work, and for somehow the collaboration between different parts or different colleagues. So what do you expect to learn during the next years? Are there already certain, let's say, curiosities you follow, or is it more like an open 
field and uh, we'll see where we'll get. I think the complexity of the question is a challenge, but a in a positive sense, because it makes it necessary not just to count how many performances of the Fifth Symphony we could find before and after and during the war, but to discuss the different situations, just not just in political life and in the way occupation was was ran, but also in musical life and musical traditions. So that makes us have to explain a lot of things that we at home don't find necessary because everybody knows it. And I find that was from, from our conference in Bonn, something I, I took with me, that we actually have to explain what we mean when we sing music, for example. Does it include Fiorelise or does it not include Fiorelise? I definitely think it does, but people started to giggle. You don't really seriously mean that we have to write down if they play that piece instead of that piece. And I said, that was one thing, okay, we have to consider what do we need, what do we mean when we say Beethoven's music? Does it count all of his music and also low status use of it? And we also have to be specific. What, what do we mean when we say musicology? Is that the historical study of classical masters? That tradition is still alive? Or does it, as we perform it in Copenhagen, mean the study of all kinds of music and sounds that could be interpreted as art. That's the way we phrase it right now. So I have been used to working closely together with people from ethnomusicology and people working with popular music and sometimes we teach classes together and our sound studies professors teach methods of musicology and aesthetics together with me sometimes. And uh, that kind of integrated and broad definition of what is musicology also means. What are, what are we here for? How can we not rep, how can we stop reproducing here hierarchies of value, which of course is there when you talk about aesthetic value, but that is not the same as the, the, the quality of, or, or the status that musicology has when it, it's not better to work on Beethoven than to work on popular music. But we have to specify how, how, do, we, how do we think about that and, and do we actually work as musicologists in, in ways that are, that are at least so similar that we can, we can perform musicology together. Uh, you're absolutely right, and somehow that also made me think about what kind of homeworks do I have to do that I didn't expect? For example, what can we take for granted or what could be taken as a general term? And all of a sudden I learned that certain things aren't as easy as we use the, the terminology, the vocabulary for that. So that was very revealing, and um, I'm really curious how this all would develop and what we'll not also only learn about uh, getting back into the 1940s and to see concerning music what happened there but also what this will tell us about our own present times because with the war in the Ukraine and the ideological claim of cultural heritage which became such a strong present topic also the question came up again, how about history in general and what kind of history is that? Because this is somehow, yeah, somewhere between distortion or at least a very, it's somehow a separation of different aspects one prefers against the others. So that was very, very revealing. And I'm just curious how this will develop during the next years. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and I also think the 
nation building is not just something that happened in the 19th century. It also happened in the 20th century and it's still happening. But we might have to add the concept of nation destruction as well, because there are actually things going on that try to destroy other nations and their perception of history and their perception of actually existing. So I think that's a, that's a, that's a very topical question. It's actual right now and uh, we are reminded of it every day. My plane was delayed yesterday going to Berlin because there was military activities over the Baltic Sea. So it's, it's, a, it's a very open question where, where we're going right now. But I think you're right that we should, we should consider that also in our work as musicologists. How, how, how do we contribute to that or another, or another uh, discussion? That was a very interesting uh, conversation. Thank you very much for your time, for your openness. I was talking to Michael Fjetschel from the Musicology Department in Copenhagen. Thank you very much. And if you're looking for further information about him and his work, please visit the website at the University of Copenhagen. If you want to learn more about our own project, visit musicandresistance.net. And finally, Michael, thanks so much. It was really, really nice talking to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This podcast was presented by Michael Custodes and his team. Francesco Bruno took care of editing, sound design and production.